Well, I titled the sermon Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible, and uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting story to unfold. We're, we're moving through the first half, this is kind of part one of a, of a two-part story, and yet it's so rich, I just couldn't cram this all into one sermon. So this is kind of the setup and the situation today, and then in a couple weeks we're going to see um, things kind of play out uh, from there. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23 today is where we're going to be. Uh, the first couple verses I titled, A Vivid and Disturbing Dream. A Vivid and Disturbing Dream. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, um, all, all D's today. We're working the D's, going all the way down the page, uh, starting with the word dream, okay? Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now, note, note that. Dreams. That's plural. Multiple dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. This man is troubled, disturbed. He is undone by these dreams that he's having. Okay, now just a, a footnote here as far as uh, timing. It says the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So that would mean that Daniel is two years into a three-year program if we go with that dating system. Now, some say that's, that's where it is. Um, there's another group of people that say that is the, the dating system used by the Babylonians, and they never count the ascension year as a full year. So this would indeed be the third year if uh, you count his ascension year, um, and uh, then Daniel would be finished with his program. So the debate goes on. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that kind of thing. Um, what we need to know is that Daniel is in Babylon. Whether he's graduated uh, or not, uh, I'm not 100% sure. Um, it's possible that he is still in school, um, but it's also very possible that chapter 1 and chapter 2 are kind of sequential, that they just kind of flow. And uh, so not a big uh, you know, trouble there or, or, or hang up as far as the text goes. Both situations would, would play out uh, equally as far as the chapter unfolds. Uh, but the Jews do not date the same way that the Babylonians did. So a Jewish dating system would count every year in the sequence, which would bring up to three, uh, the third year of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's having these dreams. Here's what I was struck by as I was studying this. You see dreams show up multiple times at the front of the, of the text, and then it goes into just a dream. And I'm kind of wondering if this is actually a reoccurring dream that he's having. So he's having these dreams over and over and over, and, and they are just disturbing him. And he can't go to sleep without having this dream again. Um, I think it's likely. If, if you look at the text and the flow of this, it moves from dreams, plural, to all the focus is on the dream. And I think that may be an explanation of what's happening. If you've ever had a reoccurring dream, you know how annoying they can be. Um, I, I had one for years um, over the span of time, and I could predict the ending, which is, that's boring. I mean, if, we, if you know how the dream ends, what's, what's the point? I don't know about y'all, but I, I am a very vivid dreamer, always have been. I usually remember the dream that I had the night before and then come out in the morning and share it with my family. This morning was like every other morning, pretty much. I told my family my dream. And uh, Jenny actually remembered one of her dreams this morning and was sharing that with us. And we we're like, ah, interesting, okay, on with the day, right? 
Don't put a lot of stock in that. When you dream as much as I do, it's, it's, like, it's more entertainment uh, than anything. <laughs> so, not so for Nebuchadnezzar. He, he is having this dream, and it is freaking him out. It is vivid. It is disturbing. And I think he understands that this is significant. There is something that is being communicated, and he's got to figure it out and make sense of it. It's driving him nuts. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. There it is, plural again. So they came in and stood before the king. Okay, so just think of this this motley crew that he assembles. These are all of the people who um, would be looked to in situations like this to have kind of an authoritative, professional, as it were, response. Here's the list. The magicians, these would have been uh, the fortune tellers of the day. Uh, The palm readers or the soothsayers, these are the people who um, would spend their time uh, stuffing fortune cookies, as it were. the, The equivalent of blowing smoke, pretty much. This is mumbo jumbo. Then you've got your enchanters. These are the astrologers. They study the stars and they make predictions. Or the psychics. They, 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 they hear about what you're saying or they think they can tell what you're going to do and predict things. And, and then they bring the sorcerers. This is where it gets a little more intense. Like these are the, the spiritualists, the, the dark artists of the day. The mediums, necromancers, consulting the dead. This is satanic stuff. Just a word on this, by the way. Christian, you are to have absolutely no involvement at all in any of this garbage, okay? When it comes to checking your horoscope, that is not for a Christian, absolutely not. When it comes to the the tarot cards or the palm readers or the Ouija boards, just don't even go near that garbage. Here's the deal. Satan is real, as we know. And he loves to crack open the door and try to get his foothold through silly little things like this. And then all of a sudden, he comes barging in in powerful ways. So don't go near it. Don't play games with it. Just ignore it. The reality is it's not new. This stuff is age old. And much of it is satanic and dark. So here are, I think, remember where we are. We are in the darkest of darkest kingdoms, Babylon itself. Paganism's heartbeat is right here, and he gets the very core of the movers and shakers of darkest paganism. They're in his court. Now, the Chaldeans, these were kind of the leaders of this bunch, it seems. They're the ones that speak on the behalf of all the others. They would have been probably the oldest and the most established wise men of the day, Uh, those that people would look to for counsel and advice and wisdom um, to make sense of these things. And dreams were quite documented and regarded in in these times. They would would document and record and then try to see what the dream was going to be about and, and what it meant. So here they are, they're in the court. The king gathers all of the brain trust of the dark arts and he puts them in his presence. What about Daniel? I mean, don't you just want to know, where is Daniel? Why, if indeed, as we heard last week, he was not only in the cream of the crop, but he was the top 10%, as it were. He was the, 
he was 10 times better, he and his friends, than all of the rest. If that is the case, why is he not the very first person to be consulted in this group? Well, those that argue that he's still in school make a case here for that. Maybe, maybe he was. Maybe he was two years into a three-year school of paganism. Or he had recently graduated and was in more of an apprentice role. Again, he's an outsider. Like, this is the king. This is a big deal. He's coming undone. He's probably going to go to the people who are tried and true and he, he knows well. Um, and by the way, Daniel's probably still a teenager, right? So he's, he's not looked to in any of this initially. He's left out of the loop. Even though we know from chapter 1, he, he should be the first one the king consults and goes to. So Daniel is not in the mix, and he's largely left out of this whole circ, uh, circumstance until later on. Let's move on. Verse 3, an impossible com, uh, demand. An impossible demand. 3 through 11. The king said to them, I had a dream. Okay, and you see that there's value here in seeing it. We went from dreams to a dream. I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now, if you're interested in the, in the language side of things, this is where the Hebrew transitions in the book of Daniel to Aramaic. For a number of chapters, it carries in Aramaic. So that would have been the spoken Babylonian word of the day. And I love that the book comes to us this way. You really get a, a taste of, the, of the, the experience that Daniel had. So here's where the Aramaic begins. O king, live forever. They start with flattery, which is you know, a, a bit of a sign. You, you get a sense for how the king kind of views this group. He is a skeptic. Okay, You're going to see that unfold. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and, and we will show the interpretation. What a, what a statement. Bold statement. Hmm. Let's go on. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. Now, if you have a uh, King James Version uh, translation, it says here, The thing is gone from me, which may lead you to believe that the king doesn't remember the dream. And I'm frustrated even by titles in Bibles. I think the New American Standard says the forgotten dream at the top. I don't believe that that is a good translation of, of this Aramaic. I think most translations would say exactly what this is kind of, the, the emphasis here is the word from me is firm. Basically saying is, I have spoken, I'm serious about this. Don't think I'm changing my mind. This is the word. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, catch this, if you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And at this point, you got to remember, these people are just listening, oh, this is a normal day, kind of upset. We'll come in here, smoke and mirrors, say a few things, throw a few fortune cookies around. It'll be fine. All of a sudden, he says this, and you're like, uh, did, did, he just, did he just say that if we don't tell him the dream, he's going to tear us limb from limb? And, and know this. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't just blow smoke like these guys are used to doing. Now, the opposite of this is wonderful. If you show me the dream 
and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, here's the demand. Show me the dream and its interpretation. I don't believe it's because Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. I think, frankly, that he's had this dream for weeks, and he's, every time he falls asleep, there it is again. What is going on with this? I think he wants to make sure that these guys aren't tricking him or just lying or deceiving him. And I think he's got an inclination that this is some of what they've been doing, which, again, sets the stage for the contrast here between Daniel and the truth that Daniel speaks and all this pagan darkness and the mumbo-jumbo the king was used to dealing with. So, a a sleep-deprived dictator... Right? Just put, put, put your mind around that. Think North Korea or something like that. This man has consolidated power, and when he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, people die. He, this is how it goes. It's Nebuchadnezzar. This guy's not safe to be around. It, it gives us a little bit of a view into the ministry of Daniel. This is the kind of context that Daniel operated in. Not easy. It would require tremendous courage to serve a man so volatile and inclined to violence. The situation is high stakes. As opposed to last week where Daniel and his friends, uh, when it came to the food, like if the Lord didn't make the kale and the carrots sustain them in a better way than the meat and the king's food, well, then they would just be forced to compromise. In this situation, they die. Like it's curtains. There's no wiggle room. Here, either do it or you die. Forgotten dream, I I address that. I don't believe the dream is forgotten. I think it's vivid and it's clear in his mind, but he is putting a test forward. He wants to hear them explain both the content of the dream, which will give him then confidence that their explanation of the interpretation of the dream will be valid. They answered and said a second time, let the king tell us, uh, tell his servants the dream. And you know this. They, you know they heard him loud and clear. But you also know that they're hoping that they didn't hear him say what they... So they're, they're going to just repeat it. Just say the same thing. Okay. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. Could you just see the, the kind of the irony of this play out in the king's court? The king answered and said, now at this point, if he was seated... He's not seated anymore. I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you uh, can show me its interpretation. That's the test. He lays down the gauntlet. You tell me the dream, and I'll trust you to give me the interpretation. If you can't tell me the dream, it's not going to go well. It is a test of truthfulness. A test of truthfulness. And and friends, what Nebuchadnezzar wanted way back then is the same thing that any sane person would want today. What is actually true 
I don't want to hear the spin. I'm sick of the news stories spinning it up for their propaganda and their uh, you know, goal and assigned truth. And No, what is true? Tell me objectively what is the facts of the story. It is right for believers to long to know what is true. And friends, with the Word of God, we have it. We have truth with a capital T. It is absolute truth. It is unchanging truth. It is truth that is sufficient, and it is preserved, and it is so good. It's simple and clear. It gives us the equipment that we need. The struggle that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was having is he was sick of people telling him lies. This is such a setup for Daniel. The man of God who comes to speak words of God. It's one of the reasons we gather together and we sit under the preaching of God's word. It's one of the reasons we seek out the Lord in the morning, opening our Bibles and going to his word. I was talking with someone recently and they said, oh man, I just, like when I I don't read my Bible consistently, my life just feels so overwhelming and complex. But then it's so refreshing to go back to the Bible and just open it up and, ah, it's like sunlight. It just warms me up. Things get simpler when the truth is in view. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wants. He wants someone to tell him the truth. And that's an admirable thing. His means of getting there, not so much. The Chaldeans answered the king. Now, here, at this point, they have nothing else. Like, they're in the corner. And, and honestly, these words are pretty in your face. If you think about what is being threatened and you think about the, the way they say these words, they respond to the king and they say, this is not, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. That's, you could see that as almost an insult. King, I know you're great and powerful, but this is nuts. What you're asking, no one has ever asked this. You, you, you're in your own league. This is crazy. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it uh, to the king except the gods. Now, this is lowercase g and in the plural. Okay, so we're, we're again paganism to the core, and they add this, whose dwelling is not with man or with flesh, which you can't help but read that and then hear the echo of God's name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. The pointer here is so beautiful. We need God, not just out there. We need him here with us, dwelling with us. And oh, Israel was so blessed. Think, the Jews are left out of this whole exchange. And they are the ones whose legacy is that God dwelled with them. We are those, by God's grace, who will be in the land someday face to face with our Savior, our Lord, the God of all of creation. God with us. In short, the pagan brain trust concludes this. Mission impossible. There is absolutely no way this is happening. And basically, we're dead men. You're going to have to kill us all because 
This can't be done. That's what they conclude. You couldn't ask for a better setup for God's man. Mission impossible. Oh, friends, how quickly we run to this place. And it was just, well, there's no, there's no precedent for it. There's no medical solution. There's no this, there's no that. Oh, there's no way. Friends, we serve a God who does the impossible. We are a people who know this, and we are reminded of things like this when we study these passages. Is there ever a mission impossible for God? Is anything too hard for our God? No. No man can do what you are asking. Now, in a sense, they're right. No man left to himself can do this. But a man who walks with the God who is, the capital G God, Yahweh, he is able, and we will see that unfold. An ominous decree, verses 12 through 15, an ominous decree. Because of this, the king was, very, or was angry and very furious. Now, sometimes the language fails. Like it, this is in Aramaic, so they're, they're making a point. This reads sort of awkwardly, but it's so true. How do you describe a man who is absolutely losing his mind in anger? Probably something like that. He was angry and very furious. The king is freaking out at this moment. And he commanded that all the wise men, all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. Wow. Just like that. They failed. They can't do it. Take them all and kill them. And now we meet Daniel. Daniel comes into the scene. Just the encouragement here to be reminded of, this is the volatility, this is the violence that Daniel was living in the midst of, and you've got to feel this. Don't just read this as a story because you know how it's going to go. Read it in the moment that, that Daniel contacts this situation. The, the sword is drawn. It may already be dripping with blood. right? It, it, this, there are people probably dying already. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So if they're already reaching down to Daniel and his companions, what became of those who were already in the king's court? They may already be dead. We don't know. So Daniel gets a knock on his door, and uh, here comes the death squad, right? He opens the door, and they are there to kill him and his friends. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why, uh, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And this is just a fascinating thing. If you just stop and consider what's happening here, okay? First of all, Daniel replies with prudence and discretion with wisdom and tact. His, his reply is not overwhelmed with panic, is it? This is a wise man who in the very moment that he opens his door and sees this guy standing there ready to slay him, he has a decision to make. I, I gotta be honest. 
my decision in that moment might be to put a new back door in the house on my way out. Like where I'm jumping out the window, I'm on the run. Daniel, in very calm demeanor, begins to interact with this, this guard. Why is the decree of the king so urgent? He doesn't know what's going on. What's the deal? What's happening? He hasn't been in the mix. What's even more amazing is that Arioch, you can just picture this. Maybe he puts down the sword, comes in. You got any water? Let's sit, let, come, come on in. Sit, let's sit down and talk. Now, all of a sudden, the guy who was at his front door to kill him is now explaining the whole story and the whole situation to Daniel. How does that happen? He doesn't have to do that. He wasn't sent to go and reason with these wise men. He was sent to kill them. God's favor upon God's man for such a time as this. God stirred in Arioch what seems to be a similar response that you saw in uh, the, the, the guy who oversaw the eunuchs, the chief of the eunuchs last week, right? There is kind of a regard and a respect for Daniel's response. He's a teenager. Remember this. And he is able to get this man of war in to explain the situation. Panic and dread or prudence and discretion? That is a good question for us to come up against. When in situations that we would otherwise be tempted to just give way to panic and be overwhelmed, when our nerves just take hold, how will we respond? Wisdom, discretion, prudence. Here is one of the displays of people who know their God is sovereign. When you know God is sovereign, you can respond differently to situations than if you're just thinking that you have to figure it all out. Don't panic. And frankly, I think Daniel is, is like talking the guy down a bit. He's de-escalating the situation. This conversation was truly helpful. A daring dependence, verse 16 through 18. A daring dependence. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Okay, so first of all, amazing fact is Arioch doesn't kill him where he was or his friends, which you've got to kind of wonder how that went because that's disobeying orders. Uh, so there was at least some, some winsomeness, a, a desire, some, some talking it through. Let me go to the king and make this request before you kill us. Give me an opportunity. Some people suggest that, that he had Arioch carry this message. I don't think that's what the text makes clear. It says Daniel went in. So he was, he was talking with Arioch somewhere, and then he went, I think, to the palace. Whether he went to the king face-to-face -face or into his court, at least, to make this request, he goes and requests of the king for a time to show the interpretation. Now, what's even more amazing when you consider this is that that is exactly what the brain trust of paganism asked for, and they were basically concluded, you're going to die. You don't need more time, he says. Time is the last thing you need. You're just stalling. Daniel is given more time. The favor of God. God gives favor. God, God bestows this gift. It, it is at least overnight, because uh, of the verses unfolding, 
Daniel is given at least a night to seek the Lord and then this time that is appointed for him to come before the king, which means that the king had to endure probably another night of torment with this dream. So, incredible courage. Here's the thing that you've got to remember. Daniel goes to request time in, in front of the king before he knows if he will have anything to say to the king. Right? So this, is, this is not just presuming upon God. This is courage and faith that God will indeed provide. He, he is not in the place yet where he can just be like, well, of course he will. You know, of course, I, just, I know dreams. I, this is what I do. No, he is trusting that God will give him what he needs, and he makes the, point, the appointment before he knows if he can actually do it. His confidence is not in himself. It is in God, the sovereign God, the king over all kings. Then Daniel went to his house. This, these verses display this. He went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, their Hebrew names, Mishael and Azariah. They're keeping their identity. His companions. He told them this. Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Seek mercy. Seek compassion from God. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Those are the stakes. Those are the consequences If God does not show up, certain death is in view. Daniel, you could say, is one of the greatest examples of prayer in all of Scripture. It's it's a reoccurring thing throughout this book. This man prays. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He prays and trusts God. God is sovereign. He knows that. And so he runs to him in prayer. He seeks the Lord to provide in this way. The other thing that struck me is that he doesn't do so alone. He goes and prays, but he, he stirs up the prayer chain, as it were. I was telling the first service, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there was a prayer request in our church when I was a kid. Uh, people would call my mom. She was like the first call on the prayer chain. Uh, we lived in a small town, so you only had to dial four numbers on the rotary thing. Four numbers, you get my mom, and then she would call five ladies who would also then each call five ladies, and that was a prayer chain. That's how it worked back in the day. And it was super cool to watch. It all kind of unfold and the strategy on there. And, and then so-and-so was sick. You had to cover her leg. And, well, now we have email, right? So email kind of serves the same purpose as the prayer chain. What is the value in calling God's people to pray? It, it's, it's not just that, that God needs uh, numbers of prayers in order to act in powerful ways. It's that he stirs his people to join together in unity in dependence upon him. And in that he is glorified. And in that we are blessed. Does God need our prayers? No, he doesn't need our prayers. He ordains our prayers. He he calls us to pray so that when he acts in powerful responses to our prayers, we see him and we glorify him. The prayer chain is put to work. His three friends begin to pray, and they know their lives are on the line too. Death is looming over these things. So let's finish here with 19 through 23. Divine disclosure and Daniel's delight. Divine disclosure and Daniel's delight. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, just, oh, I want more than that, don't you? It's like, oh, it would be so cool if there was like a whole chapter on how did that go down? It doesn't say a dream, which I was, I was kind of hoping it would say a dream, because then I could say, well, Daniel was sleeping. And that's a whole other you know, amazing thing, that, that he would have the, the, the peace of God such that he could sleep, knowing that if God didn't show up that night, he was going to die the next day. But it doesn't necessarily say he wasn't sleeping. Maybe he was, but it, however this is, there's a vision of the night. God comes to him with exact revelation, not only of the dream, but of the interpretation of the dream. Imagine if I came out this morning and I said to Jenny and Ethan and Grace, okay guys, I want you to tell me what I dreamed last night. Just fill me in. What it, they, trust me, they would have no way of knowing. My dreams are crazy. So Daniel is given the dream that God has been afflicting Nebuchadnezzar with. And it's like the Lord is talking him through this, explaining this dream. Here's what it is. Here's what it means. Truly remarkable. The Word of God changes the equation. When God speaks, everything changes. If Daniel were to go in without a word from the Lord, he would go in and basically be no different than the rest of those guys. But when God shows up and speaks and we bring his word to bear, we come in the authority of God himself. God has spoken. He can walk into Nebuchadnezzar's court, the most powerful man on earth, and he can say, Thus saith the Lord, your days are numbered. We're going to get there in a couple weeks, the second half of this story. If he didn't have this from God, what would he do? Friends, that's what we have here in our Bibles. The authority of the Word of God changes the equation. Nothing will be impossible with God. It's what the angel told Mary when he was telling her that she had been favored by God and she would give birth to the Messiah. And then he went on to explain how Elizabeth was also pregnant and that she who was barren in her old age will bear a son. And then he says this, for nothing will be impossible with God. There is never with God a mission impossible. Never. He is the God who does the impossible. And he sets the stage to do it in a way that you can only conclude that was him. It was God. He is the one who deserves the glory. Daniel's response is spectacular. So right, so fitting. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, now there's words there, that's, that's significant. He answered. So there's a, there's a, he's not, he's, he's aware, he's they're conversing, they're back and forth. He answered and said to God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now we're going to see in the interpretation of the dream how true these These words of praise ring out. It's the theme of the book of Daniel. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. This is our God, my friends. He is worthy of praise. He comes through. This is a supernatural, miraculous answer to prayer. And Daniel now knows what no one else in the kingdom knows. He knows exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is to hear. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. This is not what Daniel was doing. Man, I got a gift. Oh, I tell you, I got a gift. I'm sure good at what I do. That's not there, is it? All the praise goes to God. All of it. It's all His. It owes to Him. You have given me wisdom and might. So the God of wisdom and might can indeed bestow in grace an echo of that wisdom and might for our benefit and our blessing and our ministry and leveraging for His glory. And you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made it known Uh, made known to us the king's matter. Spectacular praise. It's highest praise for the most high God. One of the the Psalms mocks the gods of Babylon. It mocks Nebo and it mocks the other gods. There's just these pagan altars and these these wimpy uh, idols that are set up. It says those who worship them become like them. Just dead and lifeless. We give praise to the Most High God, the God who is. Hmm. Response this morning, we're going to stop there. You know, come back and we'll finish this, this account. It's spectacular how it unfolds. But uh, this morning, just a few thoughts here. There's so many ways we can apply this. One would be this. When you're tempted to panic, Pray. When you're tempted to panic, pray. I did this just recently. I had a situation come up, and it was just unnerving me. And I, I just was overwhelmed with, with this dread and fear. And, of course, fear is a prophet, right? Fear always wants to prophesy the worst possible outcome. And, and usually fear is wrong, but fear is powerful, and it just can grip you. And, oh, by God's grace, he stirred me to pray, and I just felt that fear fall off. It was so tangible, such a special gift of God in that moment. When you're tempted to panic, pray. Go to Him. Go to the one who's sovereign. Be reminded that you're not. You're not sovereign. But you know the one who is. Run to Him. You might say, well, pastor, if God is sovereign, why do we need to pray? If if God is as sovereign as you're saying He is, what's the whole point of prayer? It's a question that should be asked if you really see how in control God is. And, And this is my response. If God is not sovereign, why pray? You see what I mean? Like, if if we pray to a God who is inept, who is up there but not able. A God who is not in control, then he might be like, wow, man, thanks for letting me know. I wish I could do something. I'm feeling for you. Hope it works out. Why pray to a God like that? That's not the God who is. The God who is is a God who is able, who is in control. And we pray to him because he is. 
sovereign. You could say it this way. The sovereignty of God is expressed in the dependence of His people. That is one expression of His sovereignty because He's stirring us to pray and then answering the very prayers that we pray to display His glory, to show us His power. God of wisdom and might, pray to that God, the God who is, Yahweh. The same God Daniel prayed to is the one you pray to. Same God. Hasn't changed. The same God. With God, all things are possible. Jesus said this to his disciples when he was talking about a rich man entering the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And he's, they said, well, then who, who can be saved? And Jesus responded and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If you're tempted to despair, if you have a situation, someone you've been praying for who is just lost in sin, rebelling against the Lord, a situation that seems dire and hopeless, a situation you've prayed for for years, and you just say, you know, I, I just don't think it's possible, keep praying. Keep praying. Because God may indeed just ordain that another three or four years or six or seven or 10 or 20 years of dependence would be just the right amount of prayer to watch him act. Now it's mercy, right? We don't demand of God. We don't, we don't tell God what to do. We, we request of God. Lord, we, we pray if you'd be so pleased in this situation, show your mercy and kindness and compassion. We don't deserve it. But we look to you and we pray that your name would be glorified in whatever you decide. With God, all things are possible. With idols, mm, nope, it's mission impossible. You look anywhere else, anywhere else, it's mission impossible. We'll close with our call to worship. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. That's our God. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He answered Daniel's prayer. And He saved their lives. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do His name. Let's join with Daniel in praising the sovereign God. Bring an offering before Him. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth, including Nebuchadnezzar. Tremble before the God who is. Let's pray. Lord, we are coming into Your presence again. We come together. We thank You that You are a prayer-hearing God. Thank you that you would take time to listen to the likes of us. Who are we? We're the nobodies. But you love us and you've made us your own. You've, you've called us sons and daughters through your son, Jesus Christ. We bless you, oh God. We join with Daniel to bless you, to delight in all of your glory, your beauty, your power. Thank you for your wisdom and your might. Thank you for your sovereignty.
We lift up to you the cares that weigh upon us. We bring them to you and we, we cast them up to you. We delight in, in depending upon you because you are strong. You are good. You are faithful. Thank you that you never change. You could never get any better than you already are. You are the best good and you always will be. We delight to join in dependence with you as Daniel and his friends did. We, we give glory to you for the way you answered their prayers. And we think even of this past week, the way you've answered our prayers. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in these ways. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.